Psalms, I'd love for you to turn to Esther. We're going to be looking at chapter 8, verse 1. And as you're uh, turning there, I'd like to highlight a family sitting in the front row right now. And why? And this is why people don't ever sit in the front row. But I'd like to, uh, I'd like to bring on Mike and LaSalle and the kids right now this morning. So uh, if you don't know, Mike and LaSalle and the family have been part of our church for better part of a couple of years now, and uh, they've been doing uh, some amazing things. They got right in and served right away at the matter, helping out in worship and serving, and uh, we're here to say goodbye to them, and it's not because we don't like them, we like them very much, but uh, I believe that, Mike, you're, uh, you're taking on an internship in Airdrie, correct? Yep. Tell us just a three seconds about that. Um, a pastor in Airdrie at uh, Grace Baptist Airdrie is taking me under his wing for the next few years, so I will be teaching and preaching at a new Saturday night service that they have uh, for the youth, so the music's incredibly loud, <laughs> really fast, I don't need any of it, and um, it's a small group, maybe like 10 people, but it's open to all the churches of Airdrie, that's the idea behind it, that it's one church body, and that um, there's so much more that connects us than divides us. So let's bring all the, the youth from all the churches together and worship the God that we serve. That's so cool. Well, I'm going to miss you, man. Let me, uh, let me pray for your family, and uh, thank you for the entire... You're not leaving us totally, right? No, no, no. Like, uh, this Sunday, there was, there was no hockey. Uh, we're not, we weren't serving last night, and so we said, well, let's go back and hang out with our family. Nice. Father, we thank you so much for the opportunity for Michael Sell and your family to serve. We pray, God, that uh, you would use this as an opportunity for him to grow and for him to know, uh, for Mike to know exactly where you called him to ministry. But not just uh, Mike, but the whole family, God. Uh, I pray that there would be a blessing upon the ministry that they do. Because we want everybody, not just in Ghost Pine or Reels, to know you, but all of Calgary and all of Airdrie as well. We want everyone to know about the good news of Jesus Christ. And uh, to the, Mike is right, that is the thing that you need. So I pray that you uh, bless them and strengthen them as they go through. In Jesus' name, everybody said. Amen. Amen. All right, you guys can take a seat. Well, like I said, we are going through a series on Esther, and uh, I don't know if the PowerPoint or whatever up, but uh, we've been, if you're new here, we've been going through a series this fall on the book of Esther, and we've been theming it, My Guardian, God's Silent Protection. And we're looking just at the idea of how... God protects. God makes sure that uh, He protects His people. That He is uh, protecting you, even if He's silent in the situation or the matter that is going through. So we particularly looked at that at the uh, at looking at uh, how God is actually never mentioned in the Book of Esther, and yet we see His work all the way through. So we have two more messages on the Book of Esther, and then. It's everyone's favorite time of year. It's Christmas. So we're excited for that, and uh, we'll get ready for that. But we've got two more to go through before that, and uh, we stick, pick up our story in chapter 8. And what I want you to know is that when you're reading the book of Esther, it's important to know that the whole story is a great reversal from here on in. So if you think about what has happened and all the events that have happened right up until the party, what you're going to see is that from this point on, everything after that dinner that Esther had with the king is an exact mirror image of what happened previously. So I just kind of point that out as you go when you see it through the text this morning. And today specifically, uh, what I want to do is I want to look at Mordecai's, uh, Mordecai, what makes Esther and Mordecai great leaders? Because here we're going to see that God has gifted both Mordecai and Esther, both men and women, with gifts of leadership, and he brings them into influential positions of power, particularly these are political in nature, and we're going to see that Esther and Esther and Mordecai have assumed payments of position and authority, and we're going to see how what makes them great leaders. And here's why I want to talk about this. So I want to, um, what I want to do is I just want to make four observations about how they lead. 
and apply them to our lives today. Because the truth of the matter is, is that every single one of us, uh, next slide there guys, every single one of us is going to hold some degree of leadership in some way. Now not everyone in this room is called to be a leader or has the gift of leadership, but everyone in this room in some form, in some season, even if it's for a limited season, will be called to some place of authority and leadership in some way. You might be the captain of your sports team. You might be assigned one of those group projects that everyone hates in school. Right? <laughs> or it might be something a little, uh, a little more serious. You could be uh, called, you could get married, and you could be called to lead your family as the husband and lead as a father. That's what you could be called to. You could be called to lead at work in some sort of fashion. You could volunteer, and you could be in charge of something. At some point, you and I will all be called to a position of leadership in some way, whether we want to be or not, right? And the, and the, so the question then is, is like, what makes a good leader? What makes someone uh, a good leader? So we see that Esther and Mordecai are actually put into positions where they're not necessarily wanted to be leaders, but they're called to be, and what makes them good or bad there. The second reason that... I, I want to talk about the idea of leadership is because um, <clears throat> December is my birthday. Yeah, yeah, yeah how, you guess how old I turned. You know, no one cares, okay. <laughs> I, but my birthday is on December 7th. Now, December 7th is a very famous American historical event. You guys know what it is? Pearl Harbor. And the reason that I bring that up is because if you know what happened to Pearl Harbor, Japan comes in, bombs Pearl Harbor, and then the U.S. retaliates. And what the U.S. does is like they they wind up sending uh, they wind up sending the planes over over to Japan, knowing possibly that the pilots are going to die. And so what needs to happen is the commander in chief, the captain, he needs to find men and women who are going to call and uh, fulfill that calling. He's got to find people who are going to take up that cause, file the planes, knowing, in fact, that they are going to sacrifice their lives. And the reason that I bring that up is because every December, I feel like that's my job. <laughs> In a good way. <laughs> and what I mean by that is, like, if you've been around a manor, you know that... Uh, December is time where we nominate and pick our leaders for the church. And we need good leadership here in America. So some would say, I am a leader. Some would say I'm a good leader. Some would say I'm an average leader. Some might even say I'm a poor leader. But here's what I do know is, is that the leadership of this church needs more than me. We need good leadership at matter. There's a verse in the Bible I was reading the other day. I've been reading through Leviticus in my own devotions. And I've got to the part of Leviticus where God is instituting a cursing and a blessing for the people, right? And he's saying, if you follow me, you'll be blessed. If you don't, I'm going to curse you and do this, right? But there's this verse in Leviticus chapter, what is it here? Uh, 18 verse 6, that says, this is a very interesting thing. It says, if you follow me and do what I say, five of you will take on a hundred in battle and win, and a hundred of you will take over ten thousand. It's sort of this idea that you know, I will be with you, and I will, you will accomplish more than your size will, let, will allow for. And I've always thought that about Manor. Is that Manor is a church family where I feel like it carries more weight than the size that would justify it. So it's able to do a lot more as a church than, uh, than the size would dictate for it. So the reason I say that is because I, if you want a couple of examples of that, I'll point you to missions of the VBS. So this uh, summer we ran the VBS program and we decided to do something new. We decided that we would do a, a program where we would go from nine all the way to three to offer full-time daycare. And that is a big feat. And the reason that's a big feat is because in, in a regular VBS program, a, a church even two or three times our size would struggle to find volunteers. And yet, one of the coolest things about Manor that happened this summer was that we found enough people to run the program. We, we did something 
bigger than our church size would qualify for. Or if you look at missions that matter. We give a lot more missions. I've said this time and time and time again. Like one of the things that drove drove me to matter was the priority of in the budget to put the, the, so much money towards missions and sharing the gospel. And when I saw the percentage, I realized that man, this church like it dishes out more than for its size. And, but you know what I can say in all that is that requires good leadership. That requires people to lead. That requires us to have uh, good people in positions in Sunday school, in worship, and on the board. And so I, every year, I don't know if you've noticed this or not, but most years for the last four years, I've taken one Sunday just to talk about leadership. And so today, I want to, it coincides with the book of Esther. So I just want to bring four things out in the book of Esther that will help us uh, know how to lead in our own lives when we are called to lead, but also something prayerfully considered when we're nominating people for positions of leadership in the church. And so the first thing that I would want to draw out is that in this story, let me give you a little bit of recap of what has happened so far. We know that God's people are in trouble. We know a guy named Haman has instituted a day in which the Persians are allowed to slaughter all the Jewish people. Esther rises up and she goes to the king during the dinner and says, hey, save my people. And the person that's doing this and is ousting is, is like Haman. And, he, and she ousts him right in front of the king at the dinner, right? And what happens to Haman? Anyone know? He gets hung on the tree, right? He dies. So he gets, so the king's mad. The king, uh, Esther reveals to the king that, hey, I'm a Jew, and if you get rid of, if you institute this rule, I'm going to die too. So the king gets mad, kills Haman, and the problem is over, right? No, the problem is not over. The king's rule, the king's, uh, the, there is still this plan in place to eradicate all the Jewish people that have happened. So here's where we pick up the story in verse 1. It says this in 8 verse 1. On that day, King Hazarus gave to Queen Esther the house of Haman, the enemy of the Jews, and Mordecai came before the king, for Esther had told what he, what he was to her. And the king took off his signet ring and he had take, that he had taken from Haman and gave it to Mordecai, and Esther and Mordecai sat over the house of Haman. So you remember how I said, well, this is a great reversal, right? Everything happens at the dinner, and the dinner is a big pivot. And so at the beginning of the story, Haman is elevated. And now after the dinner, what winds up happening is Haman dies, and Mordecai is, is put, put in his place. Okay? Haman, in our context, he'd be like the vice president. He's the second in command, and now has a great deal of wealth because what happens, as you know, is that not only does Haman die, all his estate now goes to Mordecai. So this guy that is out to kill Mordecai now gets and inherits all his land. So Mordecai just went from being powerless to powerful. And not having access to the king, and to now having access to the king, and from from well-being into not having well-being to being in very poor circumstances to being very rich. And from being very low in the job scale, working on the skid city gate, now to the government uh, being the vice president in that day. That's the favor and the grace that we see on Mordecai here. And more importantly, the story is told that he is given the signet ring. So here, not only does King Azarus give over the position to Mordecai, he takes off the ring, which is a seal of authority, and gives it to Mordecai. And so what you would have to, to understand what is going on here, it's the giving Mordecai the ring would be akin to uh, our days, the legal power of eternity. So if someone is sick or elderly or struggling or dying, they will give power of eternity, or eternity to someone who is trustworthy and look after their affairs and their estate. Then they have the legal right to make decisions on behalf of that person. We all know that. And so what happens here is giving the signet ring to Mordecai means that he is now the legal authority of Xerxes. 
He is one of the most powerful people on the planet at this point in history. Now, here's what I want you to understand. Mordecai accepts this position of leadership. There could have been a number of excuses why they would have not felt they were qualified for the role. Esther could have said, well, I'm not really a royal bloodline. I'm not ready to be the queen. I'm young. She's probably in her early to mid-twenties at this point. I don't have an MBA in leadership. I'm not ready to be the queen. Mordecai, at this point, could have said something similar. <clears throat> now he's vice president, and he's ruling over the nation. He's got power and authority to decree life and death. And it could have been very easy for Mordecai to say, I don't really feel like I'm the best person for the job. But if you're humble and you love God and you love people, and you do your best in the grace, it'll be all right. And here's what I, I want you to catch. And it would have been so easy for both of them to say, well, Haman's dead. I don't have to worry about it. It goes on. We don't see that. Mordecai accepts his people and accepts his position of leadership. And what I want you to see here is that Esther and Mordecai, God's people, they accept their position of authority. And here's, here's why this is a big deal. I know that sometimes God puts us in positions of leadership, or calls us to positions of leadership, and we run from it. You might be a husband or a dad that God has called to lead over your family, and you actually run away from that role. You're concerned about it. And here's, here's my question to you. Where has God placed you in authority, and are you embracing the position of leadership that God has called you as? Every one of us has some degree of, of authority, a parent, a su supervisor at work, a volunteer. And here's what I think you need to understand. When God actually calls you to a position of leadership, gives you some more authority, one of the best things that you could probably do is humbly accept it. That's what they did. I used to know a guy in church who was a leader. He had the qualifications of a leader. He, he, what, he, people went to him for advice. He was great at decision making. By all accounts, he was a great leader, and yet he didn't ever held the official title of the leader. And if you went to him and said, hey, uh, you're a leader, he said, ah, oh, I'm not a leader. Well, why would you do that? Well, because he was running away from the position that God is calling to him. And I think that runs very contrary to what Mordecai does. What Mordecai does is he comes and he decides, God has placed me here, Esther, and Esther does the same thing, and they just kind of assume the role that God has called upon their lives. You know, friends, that it was very, very hard for me to make the transition from being a youth minister to a single pastor. In the sense that I wasn't looking for it. I didn't want to be a senior pastor in the sense that um, I, I was looking for my own glory or all that kind of thing. Uh, but what, I, what wound up happening is God called me to it and I accepted it. And it took a long while for me to get there, but I did. But my point is, is if I had been questioning the entire time, you know, should I be here or should I not be here, all this time, I would have been in a situation where I wouldn't have been working or serving the people. I would have been focused on my own problems. And so what happens is, like, there is a problem. More The people of God are going to die, and they need someone to solve the problem. And so what happens is God, by circumstance, puts Esther and Mordecai in there, and they just accept their position. This kind of goes along with the famous verse I, uh, I say, 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 1, says this. Here is a trustworthy saying, if anyone aspires to the office of an overseer, he desires a what? Do you believe that? I don't necessarily think a lot of churches do today. If you go on the verse, it, says there, it goes on to say this. 
There is a trustworthy saying in the verse, full of sentence. For this end we toil and strive, because we have our hopes set on the living God, who is the Savior of all people, especially of those who believe. So here's something trustworthy. Jesus is the Savior of all people. Amen? Amen. Amen. This is a trustworthy setting. If anyone aspires to the office of overseer, he desires a noble task. And that's a little bit hard to say amen to. And what I think has happened is, like, we, we look upon those who aspire to be leaders with cynicism and, and uh, what's the word, suspicion. And I don't blame them, because I think what has happened is there's been a point in history where we've idolized our leaders. Where we've put them up on a pedestal, and we've, we've kind of almost, without even saying it, worshipped them. And then we know that that's a bad decision, but we've kind of swung the other way. A little bit sometimes, and well, a lot of people are suspicious of those in leadership. Is it any wonder then that the church has a big problem finding leaders today? It's because I don't think we encourage people to be leaders. In Romans chapter 12, verses uh, 6-8, same sort of idea. It's talking about spiritual gifts. And at the beginning of the verse it says, have gifts... Having gifts that according to the grace of God, let us, what does it say? Use them. If prophecy in proportion to faith, if it's service, let them serve. The one who teaches, let them teach. The one who extorts, let them extort. And the one who contributes, do it generously. And the one who leads, what? So in other words, here's, here's what Romans 12 is saying. If you have a spiritual gift, use it. And so a lot of us actually shy away from using our spiritual gifts or the positions that God has called us to. And I know that maybe there may be one or two of you here where God is calling you into a position of leadership in some way, at the home, at the work, or in your family, or even at church, and you're running away from it. And my encouragement to you is that you would look at Mordecai, and Mordecai actually has leadership thrust upon him. And he actually accepts it because God has called him to do it. So that's, that's my long way of getting to that one. The second thing I want you to understand about how Esther and Mordecai lead is Esther is passionate for her people. She is passionate for the well-being of her people. It says this. Then, So what has happened is Haman has died. Mordecai is now in charge of Haman's position. And the king just kind of goes about his business. It says this, Esther spoke again to the king, and she fell at his feet and wept, and pleaded with him to avert the evil plan of Haman the Agagite, and the plot that he had devised against the Jews. When the king held out the golden scepter to Esther, Esther rose and stood before the king. And she says, If it pleases the king, and if it finds fight favor in his sight, and if it seems the right thing before the king, and I am pleasing in the king's eyes, let an order be written to revoke the letters Haman devised by Haggai, which he wrote to destroy the Jews. You kind of see your passion in the text, don't you? Esther, up to this point, has not been a very emotional woman, at least not revealed in the story. She doesn't cry a lot, she doesn't fall to people's feet all the time, begging for things. We don't see that. So what I love about Esther, she's not being incredibly, uh, she's being incredibly over the top, but she is doing the right thing at the right season. And what we see here is she's very passionate in the right way. She throws herself at the king's feet. She doesn't normally do this. This is because the request is very, very urgent. And I want to say something. When you see that in this, that Esther has this passion for her people, it's not just, hey, I'm doing this to save my own life because my life is at stake here. She's actually, her life is now out of danger, and now she's pleading for the people. You know, in Revelation chapter 21, there's this great image of what happens to at the end of time when Jesus comes back and it says this great city descends from heaven and comes to earth. Sorry, it's not a great countryside, but it's a great city, right? What is cities full of? People. People. 
Cities are full of people. Let me, let me explain something to you. There are only two things that you are going to spend eternity with, and that is people and God. That's it. All the stuff we're not taking with us. All the things we've accomplished, they come to an end. All the pursuits that we've been striving for, they will cease. The Lord and His people will be together forever. And you know what really matters? God and people. Things are fine. You can have things. But people really matter. And they really matter to Esther. She cares about God's people. And she has a passion for their well-being. And what makes Esther so admirable as a leader is she gets very excited about the well-being of the people. And that, to me, is a mark of a great leader. Somebody who loves people. There's no amen to that. Are you a people person? Listen, I know that some of us, we're introverts, and you don't like being around people all the time. You get drained, and that's fine. You're allowed to be an introvert. But if you are about to be about the kingdom of God, and be about the things that he cares about, and if he ever puts you in a position of leadership at work, at the home, or in the church, one of the top priorities that you need to be concerned about is the well-being of other people. see it here in Esther. Church, my friends, is in the business of introducing God to people. A good leader is passionate about the well-being of people. Last two, Esther has a love for people. She says this in verse 6. Let's see if I can get it here. She says, for how can I bear to see the... The, the suffering about what is coming to my people, or how can I bear to see the destruction of my, my kind? Then King Hazazarus said to the Queen Esther and to Mordecai the Jew, Behold, I have given Esther the house, the house of Haman, and they have hanged him on the gallows, because he is intended to lay hands on the Jews. So basically what she's saying is, Hey, I need you to do something here. I need you to rescue my people. And his first thing is to say, What more do you want? I gave you all of Haman's stuff, and I actually killed Haman. And at this point, I would say that you get to see the heart of King Hazazarus. Because I think why he gets angry in the story isn't that a bunch of people are getting killed, it's that his, wife, his, his wife's life is being threatened. And now that his, life, his wife's life is being threatened, he just kind of takes his foot off the gas. doesn't really care. At least that's how I would render it. In verse 8, but he says this, You may write as you please with regard to the Jews, in the name of the king, and seal it with the king's ring for an edict, within the name given to the king, and sealed to the king's request. And here's what's so cool about Esther. She goes, what about the people? The people, the people, the people. I'm passionate about God's people. And Esther is really, what I really love about Esther is she really loves the people. It says that it, it, it's coming across as she's saying, it's not about me. They're not safe. They're not blessed. They're in danger. There's a curse on them. Now, she's a young woman. She's probably into her mid-twenties at this point. She's an orphan girl. She didn't grow up with her parents. She didn't even have a mom. We hear here about Mordecai. We don't hear about her mom. We don't. We, you see, she comes into a real transforming relationship with the God of the Bible. And she's growing and she's maturing. And unlike so many 20-somethings today, even in my own 20s, she comes broken, she comes from a broken and dysfunctional family, and God gets a hold of her and uses her to have a passion for people. A good leader, I think, loves people. So those are the three that I would say, are very, very important. Esther and Mordecai accept the position of leadership. They have a passion for people. They have a love for people. And then the last one I want to spend a little bit of time talking about is this one. 
Esther and Mordecai, as leaders, they face their problem. What's this? Oh. Last one. Oh. And I picked you. Last one? The order could not be reversed. Oh. <laughs> the words are reversed. <laughs> this is why I need so much. Let me, let me finish off with this. And I'll go. Okay. Esther and Mordecai faced their problem. It says this in verse 9. The king's scribes were summoned at that time in the third month, which is the month of Sin. And on the 23rd day, an edict was written according to all that Mordecai commanded, commanded concerning the Jews. To the satraps and the governors and the officials of the province, this is from India to Ethiopia, 127 provinces. So basically, what they're saying is this order is going to go out to the whole country. To each province in its own script and to each people in its own language, and also the Jews in their script and their language. And he wrote in the name of King Zazarus and sealed it with the king's signet. So this is an official kind of letter from the king. Then he sent letters by the mounted couriers hiding on swift horses that were used in the king's service, bred from the royal study, saying that the king allowed the Jews, who were in every city, to gather and defend their lives, to destroy, to kill, and to annihilate any armed forces of people or province that might attack them, children and women included, and to plunder their goods on one day throughout the entire province of Asia. So, a couple thoughts about this. Okay. Uh, the first thing that I want to say, observe here, is that Mordecai and Esther, as good leaders, face the problem. Now here's the big problem. There's a day in which Persians can come and kill as many Jews as they want. And it's kind of a really big issue because how do you handle this problem? The order cannot be reversed. Okay, let's say that for starters. The second problem is, is there's nowhere for Jews to run and hide. At this point in time, the nation of Israel, Jerusalem, is under the authority of the Persian Empire. So it really seems like if there's anywhere to go, they can't really escape very well. Now you might say that's not true. There's a whole bunch of land. There's Europe and there's Africa. They could totally go there. But you got to remember at this point, Persia took up what was known as most of the known world. So they're in a situation where it can't reverse, and they're in a situation where they can't run. So what Mordecai and Esther do is they make an order to say, if people come and attack you, you can come and defend yourself. Now, remember how I told you that this was a great reversal, right? So remember that Mordecai is disgraced in the beginning. He's now re the reversed. He's put in the end. Remember, Haman puts an order to go out through all the provinces with an order to kill all the Jews, to annihilate them, to kill, destroy, and to plunder. And now what Mordecai and Esther do is they make the exact same order in reverse. And before I go on in this, I just want to make the, the observation that I think a good leader leans into conflict. They don't run away. Esther and Mordecai actually face that. Now here's the problem. You could debate about whether or not what they said was good or bad. But they did face the issue. And I'm going to digress here for a minute because we're talking about leadership. I need to bring something up. This is uh, just... Did I make another spelling mistake? No. Oh, okay. This is... I have to go on a little bit of a rabbit trail for a minute. Because this is a problem at first. And the problematic part of the verse isn't the fact that they can defend themselves. What do you think the defend the problematic part of the verse is? The annihilating the women and children. So remember how I told you at the beginning of this whole story about how evil this was, because not only were they killing the men, they were going after the women and children in the story too. And that's just disgusting and evil and, and awful. And it's kind of weird because here's what happens. God puts Esther in a position of leadership, and her solution is to do the exact same thing. It's a problematic verse. 
And it's the reason that I bring it up is because what you will find is that this passage is used as a proof text against Christianity. So when you uh, go, when your kids go to university and they need those atheistic professors and all that kind of thing, your kids might be exposed to a, a variety of reasons why you shouldn't believe in Jesus and the Bible. And they'll give X, Y, Z reasons. But one of the things that they will do is they will quote passages like this one, and specifically this one, to say things like, why would you ever follow God? He's mean, he's evil, he kills innocent kids, he kills defenseless women, why would you do that? Okay. And so it is used as a way to uh, speak against Christianity. And I, here's what I'm going to say. Is if you are read a student of the Bible at all, what you will find is you will have occasionally come across verses that people who are against the faith will use against you. And a lot of the times, here's what I've noticed, is that the big question that, that they are asking is, were Mordecai and Esther justified in killing God's enemies? And what I've seen is that most believers, when it comes to problematic texts that are used to speak against the Bible, to speak against the faith, most Christians do not lead by leaning into the issue. They avoid it. But what I want you to see is that Esther and Mordecai, they don't run from the problem, they run into it. And I would argue that this is a great example for us as Christians. When there's a problematic text that is brought up against us, our tendency is to avoid it. I don't know if you've... And we can avoid it in a number of ways. We can say things like, we can ignore it. We don't, I can say, I don't, I don't know, I just ignore those parts, right? Let's major on the majors and minor on the minors. And hey, I'm all for that. I believe that we should be majoring on the majors and minor on the majors. It's another thing to ignore text completely. Or you could say, you could change the Bible. You could say something... Well, I'm sure we could find an educated scholar beyond their intelligence with more degrees than a thermometer that can give us an interpretation that isn't what it means and makes us feel better. There are people that do that. And is anyone familiar with some of those? Yeah. Okay. Or you could apologize for the Bible. I've done this by accident a few times. You could say something like, well, you know, that's the Old Testament. We now live in the New Testament. And those were like God's junior high years, right? But by the time you get to the New Testament, it's hugs and muffins and angels. It's way better, right? The Old Testament is about God's wrath. The New Testament is about God's grace. You know why I have a problem with this one in particular? Because it's not true. Because when you get to the New Testament, it is true that God's grace and God's love is on display it, it ratchets up, it's like goes up a level, right? So we see that through the grace and person of Jesus Christ. But it's also true that God's wrath ratchets up in the New Testament, as opposed to the Old Testament. I know it doesn't seem like that, but let me give you a few examples. Number one, you don't get to the doctrine of hell until you get to the person of Jesus Christ. Jesus talks about it way more than any other person in the Bible. So right away you have an issue there. Second of all, if you look at the book of Acts, right at the start of the church, God kills Ananias and Sapphira for what? Lying. And then also, he kills Herod for what? Pride. For well, for, yeah, for pride. And then, what is the imagery of Jesus in the book of Revelation? One of the words. So, here's why I don't like this one. It's because if you're trying to ignore all the mean stuff God did in the Old Testament, you eventually have to, you're, you're faced with it in the New Testament as well. Or, so those are the ways that we kind of deal with it, that we kind of avoid it, or we kind of do this one. I don't know if you've done this, but suppose that your kids, are you, you're doing a good job of raising your kids. I mean, you're homeschooling them. You're bringing them to church, you're teaching them the Bible, and they're gobbling up because you're mom and dad and you're awesome and you know everything, right? Right, parents? 
But as every parent of a teenager knows, eventually that changes, and what do your teenage kids say? Whatever, Dad, you don't know anything. And you go, well, I was a teenager too, and you're like, yeah, way back in the 1800s. Do you even know what it's like to be a young person anymore? And so what they do is they push your buttons, right? They push your buttons. You, you tell them a Bible verse, and there's a problematic Bible verse, and they push you on it, and you don't know what to say, so you get angry at them. Right? And you just kind of say, well, that's just the way it is. Just kind of leave it. Can I just say something to you? Like, If your kids are struggling with doubt, the safest place to, for them to struggle with doubt is actually when they're at home, not when they're adults. Because when they're at home and they're being skeptical about the faith and they're pushing back and they're throwing Bible verses at you that are contradicting what you're learning. When they make mistakes in their own life, there's a safety net of your own home that protects them. When they're adults and they make those same mistakes, there's no safety net. So the consequences are way greater. And so what I would say is if you kids, if you get angry at your kids for, for pushing back, what they will do is they will be quiet. But then what, when they grow up, they will still have their doubts and questions. And they will, they will really struggle with it. I think it's poor leadership, mentoring, discipleship, even parenting, to avoid the problematic verses in Scripture. And the reason is, is because if you do not do it, somebody else will. I can't tell you how many times I have seen kids from good families go to college and they engage in a professor who brings up Bible verses that the, that the parent avoided and the argument is so good the parent doesn't know what to do with Somebody else will engage those, those ones. And so what I would say is that in listening to Esther, and looking at Esther's life, and how Esther and Mordecai faced the problem of annihilation. They read, they ran head into it, and I would ask that when you do it, you can do the same thing. When you find a problematic verse in the Bible, here's what I think you should do as best as you can. You go, God said it, God did it, and we need to study and learn from it as best you can. So, as we close, let me, let me give you one, one final thought. The best way to lead our children to adulthood, or slash even in college, is to lead into the problem text, not away from them. So let me give you seven real quick <clears throat> variables to consider when you're dealing with this specific, specific passage. Okay. Number one, Haman was an Agagite. A people determined to eradicate God's people. If you remember way back when, I told you that the ensuing, the ensuing conflict between Mordecai and Haman was a blood feud that lasted over generations. Haman was an Agagite, a person determined to eradicate God's people. We know that Haman is a bad man. It just sounds bad, Agagite. Okay? Now, we remember about who the Agagites were all the way back in Exodus. The story is that God commands a man named Abraham and tells him, I'm going to bring a people from you, and these are God's people. And from you, you will go. You, there will be a Savior called Jesus Christ. And then God declares, those who will bless you, I will bless, and those who are curse, I will curse. You're my people, and I'll protect you. It's like a dad looking at his family saying, you're my kids, and you're going to be safe because dad will look after you. Sort of that idea. And what happens is, as soon as God's people uh, become God's people, God's people also have enemies. And those enemies are empowered by Satan to destroy God's people, ultimately so that they would be eradicated. And that's what happens here with the Agagites. The Agagites, from day one, 
have this kind of visceral, like, tunnel vision. I've got to destroy God's people no matter what. And we see it all the way back in Exodus. And then we jump forward all the way to the story of Esther about a thousand years later, and it's still happening. These people are relentless. So I think you need to understand that this is a person who is coming at you day after day, month after month, year after year. Imagine that you were living beside your family was living exactly beside your neighbor, and your neighbor was intended to kill you, and they raised their kids to kill you, and their grandkids to kill you, and that's sort of what is going on here. So please keep in that mind when you're reading the text. Number two, Mordecai and Esther's decree was an exact reversal of what had happened. Now you might say that doesn't seem very loving and fair, because it mentions women and children and plenty of goods. All this is it's a direct reversal of the edict given from Haman and the Agagite in chapter 3, verse 13. And a careful reading of Scripture answers a lot of questions most of the time. Over in Esther chapter 3, Haman sent forth a decree to all the Agagites, telling them what they could do to, to destroy the Jews. Esther and Mordecai came along. They take the exact language of Haman's decree and they reverse it, saying that if Agagites are attacked, God's people can defend themselves. They can defend themselves against women and children that have come to, come, come to plunder their goods. So it's not just this idea that it's, uh, that it's the men, it's, it's the people who come to kill them. Number, number three, the violence was limited to one day to reduce injustice. Okay? It says here that they gave one day for God's people to defend themselves. It's not that it continues for weeks or months or years or generations. It's not like they were doing this over and over and over again. They had a decree that said they, that they could attack God's people in one day, and God's people are given another decree that says you can defend yourself on that day. That gets rid of the vigilantism. That gets rid of the abuse of authority. This means if they attack you today, you can defend yourself today, and if tomorrow you wake up and you're very angry, you can't go out harming the people. Number four, only self-defense was permitted. It doesn't say go out and look in the streets for the Agagites. It doesn't say if they show up at your house and they're trying to harm you and your family, you can defend yourself in a moment. Oh, sorry, it does say that if they show up at your house and they're trying to harm your family, you can defend yourself in a moment. That's different. It's only self-defense. That's all it is. God's people aren't to be looking for people to hurt. They are to defend themselves if people come to hurt them. And that's the difference we see in the text. Number four, though defense against women and children was permitted, there is no report that it actually occurred. In fact, if you jump forward to chapter 9, you, look at, you can look at it this week. The body count for the men who died does not include a body count for the women and children. There's no indication, there's no evidence in or outside of Scripture that any women or children were harmed. But what it does permit is if a guy shows up with his wife and kids, and that man trains his wife and his children to kill your children and steal your stuff, you can defend. Number four, number five, God did not plunder, uh, plunder their enemies. It says in the decree that Mordecai pointed out that you could plunder them and steal their stuff. And the report is given in chapter 9 that when certain Agagites did attack the Israelites, the Israelites did not plunder the goods. You can read ahead and find that in chapter 9. They didn't plunder. They didn't take the possessions. They didn't take anything of their estate. And what this shows you is it wasn't about the money. It wasn't about the greed. It was only about saving their own lives. Lastly, God does not establish this as normative behavior. It doesn't say, you know, go therefore and find the Agagites and bury them. Go and do likewise all the days of your life. Destroy all your enemies. This is not talking about a holy war or trying to conquer others or incarcerate innocent people. 
It's not doing or saying any of that. This is a very unique situation in history. This is a very complicated moment for God's people. And what's at stake is their survival in the family line that leads to the coming of Jesus. So I would say that this is not normative. We're not to get from this, go to the gun range and go get ready for the end of the world and tell your wife to churn the butter and fill up your crawl space with canned goods and kill anyone who steps on your property. That's, that's, that's not what it's saying. What it is saying is that Mordecai and Esther give permission for people to defend themselves. It's a complicated issue and a hard issue. But it's an issue where they actually lean into the conflict. I hope that helps uh, you understand this passage a little bit better and gives you some reasons for why this is in the text. But as we close tonight, I, I want you to know that we all need good leaders. We were all called to be in a position of leadership at some point. And what we can see from the text is that a good leader assumes the role that they are given, is passionate about the welfare of the people, loves the people, and faces the problem head on. Every one of us would be called to lead at some point, to lead for a season, a limited time. And I would ask you this morning as you leave to as you go home and say, hey, what did you think about this? I would invite you to ask your family, what one of these traits do you think that they see in you that's good? And what one could you work on? Is that okay? Okay, let's pray. Father, thank you for today. Thank you for the book of Esther and how you've shown us your sovereignty through it. And we just pray that we would remember that even in those times when you're silent, when we don't overtly see you, you're still working uh, in the land of prophets. You're still working for our good. You're still protecting us. All God's people say. Amen. Amen.